0: We continue now to work our way through 1 Corinthians, and we've come to the 8th chapter. You might recall that we spent three Sundays on the 7th chapter, in which the Apostle Paul was answering questions that had been asked by the Corinthian church about marriage. Now he turns to another topic about which questions have been asked, and that has to do with food offered to idols. To so the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Let us, with great solemnity but joy, go into the presence of God in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for the cross. We are thankful for the grand and great design to save us sinners from our sins. And we are thankful for the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus, the liberty, the freedom from the condemnation of the law, the liberty now to love thy law as sons and daughters of God and to seek to please thee in all things. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as we come to this text, even though there is distance historically, The issue precisely is different than what we might today face. We pray that the Holy Spirit, the great inspirer but also applier of Holy Scripture, will open our hearts to apply this in ways that the minister could never have guessed. Use it, Father, we pray, as we also, as did the believers at Corinth, live in an increasingly pagan society. And help us to be determined to glorify the one who loved us and gave himself for us, shed his blood to redeem us on the cross, for which we are everlastingly thankful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. This is the Word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, or indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Therefore, if food makes a brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Please be seated. Now let's begin with what the Apostle Paul is not addressing. The Apostle Paul is not addressing simply differences of opinion or differences in taste or even differences in judgment on serious matters. He is addressing, leading a fellow believer to compromise his conscience, particularly as it relates to following the Lord Jesus as a faithful disciple. Eating food, sacrificed to idols, raised very serious questions for believers in the first century and believers here in Corinth. Meat was offered to idols and it would be burned and some would be divided between the priests and also the offerer. The offerer, then, would usually hold a feast, sometimes in the temple, sometimes in his own home, and he would invite his friends and neighbors, associates, those who did business with him, to participate in the feast. Well, you can see immediately the question, was it right to partake as a believer in such a feast? Was it right to eat this food that had been offered to idols? Should he go to the temple and eat? Should he go to the home of the offerer if the banquet were there and participate? Must he withdraw from all social contact because the meat might have been part of an offering to an idol and because idolatry was rife in Corinth? Could he purchase the meat in the meat market and bring it home and eat it in private? Those are very serious questions of conscience. Charles Hodge points out that idolatry so pervaded the lives of Greeks and Romans that everything about them related to these things. Feasts, administration of justice, offices of government, amusements, all of these things and more were intimately related to idol worship in the ancient world. And so the early Christians were faced with daily decisions about what pleased the Lord and what did not please the Lord and how they lived as Christians in a pagan environment. Now let's look at the text under three points. And the first point is this, the principle of love, the principle of love. That's first, the principle of love. You find it in the very first verses. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So, the Apostle Paul, let us underscore, Paul is not simply dealing with differences of opinion, but differences of conscience that relate to the gospel and to our neighbor. And he says there in verse 1, all of us possess knowledge. If you're using an ESV, you'll see that it's in quotations because it's recognizing that more than likely this again is one of the slogans used by this party in the church at Corinth that is all for Christian liberty. So probably this is a slogan. The point, since we possess knowledge about this matter of idols, since we understand that idols are nothing... Let's use our liberty very broadly and indiscriminately. Now, the Apostle Paul agrees in essence with the point. Knowledge about this does give us great liberty in answering the question of what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. But in verse 7, he will say, however, not all possess this knowledge. And that's where the issue really lies. Do not misunderstand what Paul means about knowledge puffing up. If ever a verse of Scripture has been misused, it is this verse of Scripture. Everything, perhaps, from a child not wanting to do his homework to someone actually thinking that a minister shouldn't be well-trained or well-formed intellectually, well, Paul wasn't saying anything like that. The text is greatly abused. And Christians are not to crave ignorance or to care little about doctrine or little about learning. All of this contradicts who the Apostle Paul was. He's not discrediting learning. His epistles are models of learning. They contain intellectual and theological genius. And even in prison before death, he wanted Timothy to bring the books and the parchments so that even near death he could continue his work and studies. And he especially believed in a learned ministry. So what is he saying when he says knowledge puffs up? Fuciao. it means blow up, puff up, inflate. He's talking about arrogance. This is mere theoretical knowledge. He's not discrediting learning, but discrediting a learning without genuine piety that does not show love to his neighbor, that is unconcerned with edifying the church. And the great and learned Charles Hodge said, knowledge without love is, after all, only another name of ignorance. So that love that puffs up is not gospel knowledge. And the relationship between verses 2 and 3 is to demonstrate the relationship between knowledge and love, knowledge being arrogant when severed from gospel love and care for one another. The basis of gospel knowledge involves intellect, will, emotion, and concern for the brethren is anchored in the eternal electing knowledge of God of us, which is the way he concludes verse 4, verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's his electing love. You can find a parallel in Galatians 4, 8, and 9. Love then gives itself away. That's the important point. Love gives itself away. Just as God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, just as the Son willingly went to the cross and gave Himself upon the cross to redeem us sinners from our sins, true love gives itself away. Jonathan Edwards, in his personal devotions, wrote somewhere, I have this day been before God and have given myself all that I am and have to God so that I am in no respect my own. I can challenge no right in myself. In this understanding, this will, these affections, Neither have I right to this body or any of its members, no right to this tongue, these hands, these feet, these eyes, these ears. I have given myself clean away. Now that's love. God loved us. We love Him in return. We love our Redeemer, God. And then we love the people of God. Love that is true love related to true knowledge is a love that is gospel-driven and gives itself clean away. Now, that's the first point that he wants. He wants us to understand as he deals with this question that the issue is the issue of love, and he'll be working that out in a little bit. That's the first point. Now, the second point is the one true God, which we find in verses 4 through 6. Let's look again. whom we exist. And of course, he is reflecting the great Shema that was read earlier by Elder Valenti, in which the oneness of God is stressed as a confession of faith of ancient Israel and should be by us as well. And so in this context, the Apostle Paul says an idol is nothing. Paul is agreeing with the party that wants to assert liberty. An idol is nothing, so eating meat offered to them should not be an issue. That's the argument. Paul acknowledges and asserts that they are seeing some things very clearly. Wherever an idol is erected, there are no real deities there. There is no real deity behind that object of stone that is worshipped or wood. Wherever an idol is erected, The things that were read this morning from Isaiah 44 simply apply. They do not exist. And so in Isaiah 41, 24, 44 as we read this morning, or in Jeremiah 10, uh, verse 14, we also see references to this truth. For example... Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. Therefore, they cannot pollute the food that is offered to them. They can't change the food. They cannot alter the food. Food is simply food. The food is no different having been offered to the idol. It's just food. 1 Timothy 4.4, the Lord has given us all things freely to enjoy. And there are indeed some beings behind the idolatry. And those beings, he will make plain in chapter 10, are demons. And he will be very plain about that fact. But there is no God but one, he stresses in verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There is no God but one. Now, what is Paul saying in this verse? The Apostle Paul asserts positively there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, that is, he is the Creator. We are for Him. That means that we exist for Him, to worship and serve Him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, which asserts His deity, because there is one divine being in three persons. Lord, applied to Christ here, means in control of all things, and He goes on to put it, through whom are all things. The Son also is the creator of the world. And we by him, he says, either meaning we subsist in him or come to the Father through him. In either case, this is a clear affirmation of the oneness and equality of the Father and of the Son. Idols are non-entities. They are zeros. But the true and living God is. We have here One of those many passages in Scripture that demand the doctrine of the Trinity. B.B. Warfield in his great book, The Lord of Glory, says of this verse, it is clear that Paul can count on his reader's understanding that the one Lord Jesus Christ bears such a relation to the one God, the Father, that these two may together be subsumed under the category of the one God who alone exists. And I want to stress this before we move on, that this doctrine of the Trinity that is assumed in this passage by Paul the Apostle, and that those to whom he writes will understand it because he has preached it to them, taught it to them, there is no Christianity without this doctrine of the Trinity. As Hodge again says, it underlies the whole plan of salvation and determines the character of the religion in a subjective sense of all true Christians. And Without the doctrine of the Trinity, people of God, our understanding of God's being, our understanding of the Bible, the gospel, and of life is disjointed and obscured. It's an essential of the Christian faith. I wonder if you contemplate this wonder this great theological mystery of the Trinity, that there are no real idols, there are only wrong views of God, and that Jesus' prayer for each of you in His high priestly prayer in John 17 was this, and this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. You know the true and living God through Christ, whereas so many around you are filled with at least mental idols and obscure the truth of who God is. So we see in the second point that there is only one true God, idols are nothing, and therefore the food offered to them remains just food. So you see his argument thus far. First, understand there's love that's an issue here. Love gives itself. Next, let's understand that what you're saying about the idols is absolutely true. They can't change the food. They don't exist. Food is just food. But then, in his argument, he moves to something extraordinarily important in the way in which he sees all of this hanging together. And this is the third thing. The cross and your brother. The cross and your brother. Now what he does in this section is to say, true, idols are nothing. However, in verse 7 he tells us that not all believers understand this truth that idols are nothing, at least in the depth of their souls and in their consciences just converted. They've not given up yet some wrong views that are irreconcilable with the truth and they must be taught and they must grow and they must mature and we must assist them in this growth, in this understanding and this maturity. This is the kind of knowledge that builds up, that edifies because it's loving. So the principle, one principle at least here is that it is always wrong to go against your conscience. Couldn't Paul have just say, said to them, look, don't you understand? The idol is nothing. The food has is, is not been changed in any way. Just let's all get on the same page and eat. He could have said that. But he knows these people must mature. He knows that they must grow. And he knows that they have a conscience. And the principle is, please get this young people it is always wrong to go against your conscience. Always. Because your conscience is a bit of the day of judgment in your soul. In which your conscience is saying to you, you will give an account on that day when Christ comes again. And when the conscience is ignored again and again and suppressed, pushed aside, the conscience becomes more and more silent and ceases to be the warning signal of God in the soul. So it's wrong to go against your conscience, but your conscience can nonetheless be wrongly informed. Now Paul understands that. It's wrong for these people who don't understand this truth about idols to eat this food because their conscience will not permit them even though biblically speaking on, on, on theological understanding they need to grow and they need to mature and understand that idol is nothing and that they really can't eat the food. Our goal should be to bring our consciences more and more under the authority of the Word of God by learning better and better what is true and how to apply it to all of life. There were Christians who had weak consciences who believed that it was wrong to eat food offered to idols, even though Paul agrees on one level that it is not wrong to eat. It's what he says in Romans 14, that which is not of faith is sin. If you cannot eat the food in faith, then it is sin for you. So Paul reminds them that food does not justify us. It's nothing in this regard in verse 8. Maybe some are in flaunting their liberty or even making a merit out of it. That's certainly possible. We are, after all, accepted only through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith, alone through no work of our own. But in verse 9, there the apostle says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. It is your lawful right to eat this food. But be careful about your brother's conscience. Do not cause the weak to morally stumble by the rightful exercise of your liberty. Now nobody can determine this for you, people of God. We can't say, well, if, if you don't follow what I think you need to do in this situation about your brother and his conscience, then there's church discipline. No, not at all. This is a matter of maturity as well. It's a matter of learning how to put your brother and his conscience before your rights. Look how you exercise your rights in matters of faith. Do not be a stumbling block. Proskama means stumbling or hindrance. Don't become a hindrance. Do not cause the weak and doubting morally to stumble by the exercise of of your liberty in Christ. So here is how eating meat offered to idols could lead the weak to sin. We find it in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, in other words, you understand these things, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And then, of course, your brother would be sinning because it's against his conscience. He's following your example, but his conscience is forbidding him. So if he sees you, the strong who can eat in faith with a clear conscience, there reclining in an idol's temple and eating this food. By the way, let me say, Paul really is dwelling on the eating here in chapter 10. He will tell you not to go to the temple, that that is wrong. But he doesn't bring that point up here. He's dealing with the eating. And if he sees you eat in faith, reclining with meat, eating, the weak believer might be led to eat even though it would condemn his conscience and he would participate in sin. And you never want to lead your brother into sin against his conscience. Buying such meat in the market and eating is, in private is, is not a sin. Now, the seriousness of this is found in verse 11. In verse 11, where he says, And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now, no one for whom Christ was a substitute on the cross and for whom he satisfied divine justice, who trusts in him alone for redemption, will ever perish everlastingly perish is defined by the context verse 7 a defiled conscience verse 12 a wounded conscience verse 13 making him to offend his conscience and to stumble that's destroying your brother not loving your brother So please understand that Christ, our high priest, satisfied divine justice on the cross and secured our justification and our peace before God. When he says, destroy your brother, you can imagine someone saying, I went against my conscience. This just destroyed me. It hurts me. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have followed my brother in this. So he's saying, you need to treat your brother with a lot of care. You need to love your brother and be aware of his conscience. And if you become aware that your actions are causing him to stumble, then change your actions. It doesn't affect your liberty in Christ one way or the other. Just don't do it because you're free to and you're free not to. Old Matthew Henry, those whom Christ hath redeemed with His most precious blood should be very precious to us. If He had such compassion as to die for them that they might not perish, we should have so much compassion for them as to deny ourselves for their sakes. Then he says in verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against not only your brother. He says there in verse 12, you sin against Christ. We sin against our brother when we wound his weak conscience. And let me repeat, this is not just anything about which you might have even a serious difference of opinion. These are matters that truly relate to tempting our brother to sin against his conscience, to participate in something that his conscience does not approve. And this, the Apostle Paul says, you are actually sinning not only against your brother, you are sinning against Christ who died for you and for your brother. What good is done to the brother is done to Christ. What evil is also done to Christ because he is in union with Christ. You can think of Matthew 25 here. And do we wish to sin against Christ who died for us and who set us free? He's the reason we have liberty in our conscience about this matter and many others. And then in verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to give you the Greek here. It says, Ume phago crea eston aiona. Ume. What the Apostle has done is he's taken two negatives, u and me. he's brought them together. Which is the strongest way in the Greek New Testament of saying no, 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 or never, never, never. So, read it that way. Never. If it's going to offend my brother's conscience, I will never eat Aston Iona, hear the word eon, unto the ages. For ages and ages, forever and ever, for eternity, I will never eat this. Food, this meat offered to idols if I know it's going to lead my brother into sin. Now that's how strongly he put it. So Paul will forgo his right so that he does not cause his brother to stumble. And here he uses the term scandalizo. Matthew 18, 5 and 6 and so forth. uh, Offending your brother, Scandal. And Charles Hodge adds, "It is still worse to lead him into error forever is the mother of many sins." Hodge also says, "It is morally obligatory, therefore, to abstain from indulging in things indifferent, when the use of them is the occasion of sin to others, this is a principle the application of which must be left to every man's conscience in the fear of God." He's right. But note well, look, my friend likes vegan. I like roast beef. All right? That's not what Paul is talking about. We might even have serious differences of opinion about vegan and roast beef. That's not Paul's point. He's talking about food offered to idols, serious issues that could lead a brother to defile his conscience, even though in Christ he may freely partake. Now, suppose I was asked to preach in a church, and I have preached in churches like this, in which most of the ladies who were gathered in that church believe that it's wrong to wear makeup. And Vicky's going with me. I'm not going to say to her, Vicky, will you find the brightest, reddest lipstick? And where? So that you can just show these ladies what Christian liberty is all about. That could lead someone to sin against her conscience. Or, if you grew up drinking beer with your meals, maybe you're German, and you're going to have into your home someone who thinks that drinking beer is a sin, then you wouldn't have beer because it might lead your brother to offend his conscience. When he comes to eat with you, you don't drink the beer. When you're there with your own family and your conscience is free, then is you follow your own conscience in the matter, not to excess. If you were a missionary to the Navajo, you might have to think carefully about participating in certain rituals and festivals, either because some of them are wrong, or because something might not be wrong but could offend the consciences of new converts who have come out of that religious background. For the Corinthians, pagan thought and practice was so intertwined with everyday professional and social life that they were regularly faced with these issues, and it will be really interesting to see as paganism continues to grow in our culture, how this manifests itself for us as converts from paganism come in among the people of God, and we must have regard to our brothers' and sisters' consciences let me close with a few thoughts for you are there, this is the first thing are there times when this must, this principle must be used differently than what Paul says in this chapter, now we're primarily concerned with what he says here of course but are, are there times where the principle has to be used differently, and the answer to that is yes Paul had Timothy circumcised Paul refused to have Titus circumcised, was Paul inconsistent, no he refused to have Timothy circumcised because the gospel was not at stake. Someone's conscience leading them to sin was not at stake. But with Titus, with Timothy, evangelism was an issue. I'll mention that in a moment. But with Titus, the issue was the gospel. The Judaizing party in Galatia was insisting that circumcision was necessary in order to be truly regarded as a Christian and a member of the church. And so, he actually got right in the faces of their conscience and refused to have Titus circumcised because it would have compromised the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. Now, that took a lot of wisdom, didn't it? It took maturity. It took growth. So when the truth of the gospel, that fundamental of how we are accepted by God, when that is at stake, when that's the issue, merit, then we do not bow to men's consciences. It's not just a matter of maturing in the gospel, but the fundamental question of how a sinner is justified in God's court of law. And then sometimes, even in history, the question is difficult to answer. I'm not suggesting it's always easy. It isn't. Were those who ate sausage on Ash Wednesday in Zurich in 1522 at the house of Christopher Froschauer, in order to show that they were free in Christ, were they right to do so? I'll let you go study the issue. You go look up the history. And you try and come to a decision on that matter. So there are times when the principle must be used with a great deal of wisdom and used somewhat differently. For evangelism, this is another reason. The Apostle Paul is not stressing that here, but nonetheless that would have been an issue as well. For evangelism, though not Paul's primary point, we may sometimes refrain from the use of our liberty So I read recently of a a Muslim man that was um, converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he goes back to his Muslim home, the first question out of his father's mouth is, have they gotten you to eat pork yet? No, father, I'm not eating pork. I don't eat pork. Then the father's willing to continue the conversation about Christ and the gospel. If he said to his father, I eat pork, that would have been it. So for the sake of the gospel, the man who is completely free to eat barbecue sandwiches doesn't do it. Do you see? Love gives of itself. And we're concerned with the consciences of men. And it's not always easy to think through and apply. And we might even come to differences of opinion from time to time. Principles about involvement in what some might consider questionable practices, though not condemned by God. Let me try and give us some principles. These are things not condemned by God. We're not talking about stealing and adultery. We're not talking about bearing false witness or breaking the Sabbath. We're talking about things not condemned by God. What are the principles about involvement? In those things. All right, young people, really important that you get this. Some of you already are facing these things with your peers. You will face them in college if you're off on a college campus. So, does it offend my brother's conscience? Not, is it a disagreement that is appropriate to have, not is it a difference of opinion, does it offend my brother's conscience? Does it offend my conscience? Because if it offends your conscience, don't do it. That which is not of faith is sin. Does it edify the body of Christ? Does it edify the church if I participate in this thing? Will it harm my witness in the environment in which I'm living? If it will, then I'm not going to do it. Does it place me in temptation? Because we should never intentionally place ourselves in a position in which we know we will be tempted. Does it place me in temptation? Does it make me and help others to be more Christ-like if I participate in this. Does it show love? Robert Murray McShane said, Love is known by the sacrifice it will make. If you will sacrifice nothing, you love not. Hereby we know that men love not Christ. They will sacrifice nothing for Him. Someone who will sacrifice nothing for Christ does not love Christ. Does it show love? And can I do this thing or participate in this thing to the glory of God, which the last in my list is first in importance. Can I do this to the glory of God? That is with heart and soul seeking God's glory what is the chief end of man man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever if I participate in this thing will it bring glory to God turn to chapter 10 of 1st Corinthians verse 31 This is the fundamental issue, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it's tautological, everything. Do all, again, everything to the glory of God. Each of us here has a long way to mature in this. But may the Lord mature us and grow us so that we do all to the glory of God. Thus far the word of the Lord. Amen and amen.